You'd open your Bibles to Revelation 17 tonight. We're going to be looking at verse 7 tonight to verse 13, which says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures and your people who are out to partake of them tonight. We pray that you would bless our time. We pray that the scriptures would be meaningful to us and that we would understand what you have revealed here. Lord, it's our desire to understand what you've put in writing. You obviously have put this text in writing because you want your church to see it, know it, and understand it. So I pray that we would see it, know it, and understand it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Just this past week, Ben Carson, John Rich, and Larry Elder opened up a new bank called Old Glory Bank. And there's one physical location of it in Oklahoma. Primarily, it's a bank that's getting going online. Now, the reason why they opened the bank is they saw governments in countries like Canada and Brazil freeze the accounts of people who did not agree with the national political ideology. In other words, the government was determining who would be able to get access to their own money. They said, it's heading that way here, therefore, that's the reason we're opening up this, this old glory bank. We do know, based on Revelation chapter 13 and verse 17, that there will come a point when if one does not receive the mark of the beast, one is not going to be able to buy or sell. We would assume they're not going to be able to have access to any of their money that's in the banking world. And all of that is going to hit in the tribulation, which means all of this is a prelude to the tribulation. Now, last time we were introduced to this Babylonian great harlot who has influenced the world. She's influenced the world of politics. She's influenced the world of religion. She has seduced the world by her idolatry and by her immorality. I do want you to go back to the passages of Jeremiah just for a minute. I want to point out a couple of things from Jeremiah. If you'd go back to Jeremiah chapter 50 for just a second, Jeremiah chapter 50. And I want to show you the fact that she has really influenced the world with idolatry. In Jeremiah chapter 50, I'm going to go to two texts in Jeremiah, and then we're going to go tonight to some passages also in Daniel. But in Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 38, we read, A drought on her waters, and they will be dried up, for it is a land of idols, and they are mad over fearsome idols. That's Babylon, mad over idols. They love idols. Then if you flip over to chapter 51, 
And beginning at verse 6 of chapter 51 of Jeremiah, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He's going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her, bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come and let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. So just before God turns the program again back to the nation Israel, he's going to do something devastating to this Babylon because of her idolatry and immorality. God is going to hold her accountable for moving people away from him and his truth. And this Babylonian harlot has done her great work in religion. And H.A. Ironside said, most people do not realize how much religion is under the influence of this harlot. And he used some pretty interesting illustrations. He said, most people, for example, think that there's something special about a Good Friday service. Most people think there's something special about an Easter service. Most people think there's something special about a Christmas mass. Most people think there's something special about a Christmas Eve service. He said, where do you think the idea of confessing your sins in a confessional booth came from? Where did the idea come from that you should worship Mary? Where did the idea come from that you can be baptized in water and be saved? He said that all came from the Babylonian harlot. He said, in fact... Galatians says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. See, this religious world doesn't understand what this Babylonian harlot has done. All of this religious stuff that has seeped into religion has come from this. And it's all designed to subtly pull people away from a true focus on the word of God and a true focus on a relationship with God. That all started in Babylon. Now in the previous verses, John saw this Babylonian harlot who was completely supported and carried along by the beast and the seven world powers and ten kings, she is intimately connected to all of that. And it must be, as John looked at this and is watching this, that perplexed him. He saw this wealthy, immoral, idolatrous, apparently beautifully dressed woman that had seduced the whole world. And it must have just bothered him. I mean, it must have really confused him. It baffled him. Because here he is on Patmos, He's thinking about, you know, I traveled with Jesus Christ. I spent three years with him, traveling around with Jesus Christ. And then now I've had the privilege of seeing him in all of his glory. He said, it's just mind-boggling, just mind-boggling that this harlot could seduce the whole world. That this harlot could actually pull the whole world away from Jesus Christ through religious and political leadership. So what God permitted this angel to do according to verse 7 of Revelation 17, 
is they allow this angel to give John some critical data concerning this. John was perplexed as to what he had heard and seen concerning Babylon, so the angel reveals to John the interpretation of it all. And we learn a lot in this section tonight about the beast in these verses. John had been talking a lot about the harlot, but we learn a lot here about the beast. He's been taking in a lot with the bold judgments and the angels, and now when he sees this thing with Babylon, he just can't imagine the fact that the whole world could be seduced from a relationship with Jesus Christ through immorality and idolatry. But where do you think over 4,000 different religions of the world have come from? I mean, you've got Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism, and you have Taoism, you have Sikhism, you have polytheism, you have German paganism, you have Greek paganism, you have heathenism, you have Catholicism. Where did all that religious stuff come from? It was just mind-boggling to John. So this angel comes and he gives him some information about all of this. And in verse 7, the angel, who'd been showing John things about Babylon, decides to further unravel the mystery. So he says, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So he says, I'm going to specifically unravel for you what's going on here, what you're looking at here. He wants John to understand this. And I think that's an important principle because what that tells us is God does want us to understand the book of Revelation. He doesn't want to just read the book of Revelation and say, oh, nobody can ever figure that out. He wants us to understand the book of Revelation. And there are a series of three explanations, three key explanations that is given in this text. The first one is the explanation of the beast in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now the beast is that same beast we've already seen in Revelation chapter 13. The beast is none other than the Antichrist. We met him in chapter 13 and there were several verses that were devoted to him. He's the one who has full satanic power and authority. He's Satan's masterpiece. And he really is the king of the world for about a three and a half year span. He's going to work in close connection with this harlot. And he somehow built a close relationship with her. Now, because it's Babylon, and because we take that literally, we would say geographically that refers to Iraq, and the religion that dominates Iraq is Islam. So we would suspect that somehow... This beast, this Antichrist, has developed a close relationship to the Islamic world, and we believe he will have done that. He would have had to have done that to make some type of negotiation with the Islamic world so that Israel could rebuild her temple. I mean, in order for Israel to actually put up a temple where there's a dome of the rock, which is some Muslim shrine that's standing there, something, some negotiation has to be made with the Islamic religious world to allow them to put up that temple so that the Jews can worship God. And we know that a critical key to the events that will take place in the tribulation concern that temple. Now, the reason why he is reintroduced here is because he's going to play a major role in the world powers that are going to bring the times of the Gentiles to an end. And we're approaching that here. 
We're approaching the end. We're getting down to the final days of things that are happening just before Jesus Christ comes back to take over the world in all of his glory. And there are facts that are revealed about this. First of all, the beast that John saw was and is not. This is mind-boggling here, but we'll get it. The beast that you saw was and is not. What that means is that John got a future glimpse of the beast that was not yet in existence when John lived. God let John see him in the future. God let John see this beast. This beast was the satanic antichrist, and John got to see him even before he came into existence. Now, we may assume that John saw him and probably does know his name. He goes back to the island of Patmos, and he must have known who the guy is. I mean, he spotted him, and he must know his name, but he doesn't reveal that to us. Apparently, God didn't let him write it down for us. He doesn't give us the identity, but he did let him seem. And the reason why the angel can say that the beast is not is because this beast will not be in existence during the church age. He's going to surface after the church age. This one is not here right now, but he's going to come into existence in the future. No, he may be alive now. I mean, it's very probable and possible that he is alive now, but he does not have his power yet, and he is going to surface according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 after the rapture. He will not surface until after the rapture of the church. I mean, we could look at people in Europe and we could keep our eyes open, probably should, and watch those political leaders that are maneuvering. But the fact of the matter is he's not going to surface till after we're gone. So there's no point playing some type of mental gymnastics trying to identify this guy because he won't come into the limelight till we're gone. There's fact number one. Second fact, the beast that John saw will come up out of the abyss. Verse 8 says, and is about to come up out of the abyss. Now that place, the abyss... I'm telling you, that's a scary place. Demons fear that place. You may remember in Luke that when Jesus was going to cast the demons out of this man, they begged Christ, don't send us to the abyss. It must be an awful place. And people have the idea, oh, hell's just going to be this party place. Well, demons have seen it. Demons know what the place is like. They're petrified of it. And quite honestly, people who are not afraid of hell, they're fools. Now this abyss has been mentioned previously. Back up to Revelation chapter 9. And in Revelation chapter 9, we read in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 9, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, he opened the bottomless pit, that's the abyss, and the smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Drop down to verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So this is a demonic, satanic place. Now what the angel wants John to understand here is that this beast that's mentioned here, is coming from this place. This beast is coming from this place, which would have two applications. First of all, the beast surfaces out of the abyss, which means he's totally satanic, 
This is a satanic realm here. This is an evil, hellish place. So he's totally hellish. But secondly, he's going to receive that mortal wound. And we'll talk about that in just a second. A mortal wound in which he will apparently look to be assassinated. And when he receives that mortal wound, he's going to go to that abyss, but he's going to be raised back up out of the abyss, which will cause the world to marvel. So what the angel is telling John is you're looking at this guy. You're looking at this guy, and he is the one who you've already seen earlier kill those two prophets. He'll be a Gentile, not a Jew. He's coming out of the Gentile sea world, but you are getting a glimpse at this one who came out of the abyss, or is coming out of the abyss. Now, the third fact is the beast that John saw will go to destruction. Verse 8 says, and the beast who comes out of the abyss will go to destruction. Now, the angel just kind of interjects that. You know, I mean, this guy's a scary guy, and he probably wants John to say, hey, he's not going to win this. You need to understand this. And I'll show you the destruction. Just flip over to chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 20. There's where he's destroyed. It's an interesting verse. Revelation 19, verse 20 says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now, they're thrown alive, which means, I mean, most people that go into eternity, they leave their body and their soul goes there. This guy is going to be thrown by Jesus Christ, body and all, into hell. That's what he's saying here. And what the angel is revealing to John is, look, I just want you to understand something. You're about to see that he's a powerful guy. And he's going to have dominant power, but you need to understand this. He's going to be destroyed. Jesus Christ is going to destroy him. So you don't need to sweat it when you see him or when you think about him. Now, the fourth fact is the beast that John saw will cause the world to wonder. Verse 8 says... And those who dwelt on the earth, whose names had not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now, the thing that will cause the world to wonder in amazement is going to be that counterfeit resurrection. Let's go back to Revelation 13 and look at that in Revelation chapter 13. And you'll notice in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3... The text says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Drop down to verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Look at verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So what we learn here is that this beast or this Antichrist is going to apparently be assassinated, and those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, they're going to follow this guy because he's going to deceive the whole world. And that's exactly what Satan's out to do. I mean, he's out to deceive the whole world. He doesn't want the world right with the Lord. He doesn't want the world saved. He wants them all burning in hell where he's going. That's what he wants. 
He doesn't want people coming to truth in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when the Antichrist surfaces in some form of resurrection, the world is going to follow him and worship him. They're going to view him as some divine savior. I mean, he'll really play this thing up. I've been raised up. I'm your savior. You need to follow me. And you've got this Babylonian religious harlot riding on all of this. I mean, she's promoting false religion and she's promoting the worship of this guy. And you've got the false prophet who's promoting the worship of this guy. I mean, you have a real quagmire here of religious stuff and he's deceiving the whole world. And John is told by the angel, that's what you're seeing here. Now, the fifth fact is the beast that John saw was and is not and will come. He says in verse 8, that the beast he was and is not and will come. Now, it's very clear that he's basically saying, John, you saw this guy. He will not be presently in existence when this is over, but he's going to come into existence. You can count on that. So when John would end the writing of the book of Revelation, and he ends up back on Patmos, and then eventually he goes to Ephesus, that's what history tells us, he has the memory of someone that he saw when he was in that moment of looking at this, but then that person wasn't there then in existence as John is living toward the end of the first century, but this one will come. That's what he's being told here in Revelation. The angel is affirming that the Antichrist that John saw really came into this world. John did see him, and even though he's not alive at the time that John was living after he wrote the book of Revelation, he will come most definitely into existence. So there's explanation number one. Explanation number two is the explanation of the seven heads, verses 9 to 11. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. There are nine facts that we learn from this explanation that the angel gives to John. Number one, the seven heads are seven mountains or seven major monumental powers. We can conclude that those were mountainous powers dominating the world. These are seven world powers, major powers, that will be dominating the world. The phrase seven mountains was often used in connection with Rome, but Rome was built on seven hills. In fact, some take the position this refers to Rome and Roman Catholicism, but I don't agree with that. I don't think that refers to that at all. Rome was built on seven hills, not seven mountains. And this says seven mountains. This cannot just be limited to Rome. Rome had idolatry. She's not the mother of idolatry. Rome certainly had immorality. She's not the mother of immorality. I think more than likely it's a reference to the seven continents of the world that will be all under the control of the Antichrist. I mean, you have North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, Antarctica. And it also may be a reference, and we'll show you that from Daniel in just a few minutes, to the seven major world powers that God would permit to dominate Israel. He will permit in the history of the nation Israel seven major world powers to dominate her. And there has been that and there will be that that will dominate Israel. And this harlot woman 
has influenced all the continents of the world. Think about this. This harlot woman with her religion and with her idolatry and with her immorality has influenced all parts of the world. It all stemmed from this place. Now, the second fact is the woman sits on these seven mountains. That's what's brought out in verse 9. And the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, the thing that makes this woman so important and so powerful, she has all this authority behind her, this backing. She's backed by the authority of the seven major world powers. I mean, false religion has dominated the world. And think about this. In the tribulation, that's all you have left, false religion. Other than those individuals who believe in the Lord shortly after the rapture, most of them are martyred. And then you have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are singled out. You have those two prophets in Israel, and they're communicating truth. But for the most part, they're now out in the wilderness, we learn from Old Testament prophetic passages, and they're being protected by the Lord. They're hiding out, so they're not the dominant religion of the world at this point. So what you have left here is you have a bunch of false religion dominating the world. The third fact is the seven heads are seven kings. Verse 10 says, and they are seven kings. The seven heads are seven kings. Now, some believe this is a reference to seven Roman emperors, but here's the problem with that. In the first century, you have 13 Roman emperors, and if you count all of the Roman emperors from Julius Caesar until the fifth century AD, you have 78. So if we just start and Go through the first century, there's Julius Caesar, then you have Caesar Augustus, then you have Tiberius, then you have Caligula, and then you have Claudius, then you have Nero, and then you have Galba, then you have Otho. He was in as a Caesar for four months, he commits suicide, then you have Vitalius. Vitalius, he lasted six months, was assassinated, then you have Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, Nerva, Trajan. So what seven is it? I mean, if you were saying this refers to seven kings or seven Roman emperors, what seven is it? I don't think it's a reference to that at all. I don't think this has reference to that in any way, shape, or form. I think this is connected to Daniel. And I believe that this is a reference to the world powers that God would permit to dominate the nation Israel. I want you to go back to the book of Daniel. I'm going to take you to some passages, and I want you to, first of all, turn back to Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel is interpreting this vision that was received, or this nightmare dream that was received by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's giving an interpretation of it. And in verse 39 of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says, After you and your kingdom, there will come another kingdom inferior to you than another third kingdom, of bronze which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So it is predicted that from the Babylonian kingdom, you're going to have four more kingdoms that are going to come into existence. Now I want you to flip over to Daniel chapter 7, if you would please. Daniel chapter 7. We'll start at verse 1, and then I'm going to highlight some verses. Highlight some verses. In Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed. 
Then he wrote the dream down, related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts, these are Gentile powers, coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also of four heads and dominion was given to it. After this... I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boast. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. I want you to look down to verse 21. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Drop down to verse 23, and he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now flip over to chapter 8 of Daniel. I'll make sense of this for you in just a moment. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20. We read in Daniel 8, 20, The ram that you saw, and he names a power here. The ram that you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Then if you look down at verse 21, The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, which would be none other than Alexander the Great. Now flip over to one more text, Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 20, we read, Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. What we learn from the book of Daniel is that God in history has permitted seven major world powers to dominate Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and you have one more dominant world power yet to come. It'll be a vicious power. There's one out there still that Daniel said, I saw that. He said, I've never seen a power like that one. That one is different than all the others that I saw. The fourth fact is five of the seven kings have fallen. Now watch this in verse 10. They are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. At the time John lived, five of the seven kings that were part of those seven heads of power were no longer in existence. Those who hold to a seven emperor interpretation have a major problem figuring out which five emperors had fallen, because there were a lot more than that. But if you leave it in its context and compare it to Daniel, at the time that John is seeing this, Egypt had fallen, Assyria had fallen, Babylon had fallen, Medo-Persia had fallen, and Greece had fallen. You had five powers that had dominated Israel, that had been permitted by God to dominate Israel. They were gone. Which brings us to the fifth fact, the sixth king presently exists. We see in verse 10, five is fallen, one is. 
Well, at the time that John lived, the sixth of the seven kings was in existence, and the sixth power on the list of world powers was Rome. And at the time that John was writing this, he was being controlled by Rome. He's on the island of Patmos because Romans sentenced him there, and they were controlling the world. Then the sixth fact is the seventh king has not yet come. We read in verse 10 that one is and the other is not yet come. There is a seventh world power, a seventh world dominant power that was not yet in existence when John was seeing this. He's yet to come. This will be the final world power that will be controlled by the Antichrist. It's going to be, if you carefully crawl through Daniel, which we've done, it'll be a revival of this Roman Empire. It will become the biggest and it will become the worst power of all. It'll be a dictatorial power. It will be a power that will dominate the world. Now, the seventh fact is the seventh king will come and remain a while. Verse 10 says, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. This seventh king will be a world power that will come and will not be immediately destroyed. He's going to reign for a while. This world leader is going to be in charge. It'll be a short while because as you'll see, this seventh world power is going to be taken over by another power. This one guy, this satanic guy, this antichrist, which brings us to the eighth fact. The beast is an eighth king who comes out of the seven. You'll notice what you read in verse 11, the beast, which was and is not, and is himself also an eighth. And he's one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Now, this eighth king, he's going to come out of the seven kings. He'll surface when the final Gentile power is in existence. This is going to bring the times of the Gentiles to an end. The beast comes out of that seven major, he's part of the seventh major power that God is using to dominate, but he's going to be so unique, he becomes an eighth world power. That's what's being said here. This guy who surfaces is part of that final power that God's going to allow to dominate the world, but he's going to control it. He's actually going to be his own power, and he's classified as being an eighth power. He'll be one of those guys, but he'll be the most ferocious one to ever exist. He'll be his own world power. Again, the angel brings out to John the ninth fact. He's going to be destroyed. He'll go to destruction. Verse 11 says, and he goes to destruction. That finale of the beast will be that Jesus Christ is going to cast him body and all into hell. So there's explanation number two. Explanation number three is the explanation of the ten horns, verses 12 to 13. The ten horns, which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. When that Antichrist is here, these ten kings are going to be there on the scene. And there are four facts that are brought out about them. First of all, the ten horns are ten kings. And that squares with what Daniel says. Daniel says exactly the same thing in Daniel 7.24. There will be ten kings, and ten kings are going to align with this unusual beast. He said, this beast was the most vicious thing I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. The second fact is the ten kings have not yet received a kingdom, and they have it. They do not yet have their kingdom. We can look at Europe tonight. We can look at the European Union tonight, and you could say, well, you can't boil this down to a ten-nation confederacy. I mean, we're not seeing that yet. 
We don't see 10 major powers that have aligned themselves together in a way in Europe, in a revival of the Roman Empire, so it hasn't happened yet. The third fact is the 10 kings will receive their kingdom at the time of the beast. That's important. Verse 12 says, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, we may assume that the criteria for being one of these powers will be you will actually unite together against Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know any political group that's actually said, let's band together, let's get 10 world powers together because we hate Jesus Christ. That hasn't happened yet. It will happen in the tribulation. We can assume that these 10 powers are going to unite based on an anti-Lamb of God agenda. That will be what they'll be attempting to do, be against God. And God's going to sovereignly permit them to band together. He's going to sovereignly permit them to band together, and they're going to have their power. They're going to have their moment in the sun, as it were. And he's going to let them, for a short period of time, a brief period of time, have limelight in the tribulation. But the final fact is the ten kings have one purpose, and they give their power to the beast. Verse 13 says, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. I mean, the whole goal of these ten kings at this point in the tribulation, just before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to take over the world, is to support the Antichrist and his objectives, and his goal is to rule the world and stamp out anything connected to Jesus Christ, and they are going to align themselves with him and with that objective. Satan will be, at that point, using his diabolical trinity. He has himself, he has the Antichrist, he has the false prophet, and he's going to be dominating all world powers in an attempt to destroy anything connected to Jesus Christ. I want to leave us tonight with five concluding thoughts. First of all, Satan is deeply connected to political leaders. Don't ever forget that. This is the times of the Gentiles, not the time when Christ is reigning in righteousness. And understand that. Satan is deeply connected to political leaders. There are two images that you get of Satan in the New Testament. He is viewed as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's also viewed as an angel of light. You have two images that are given of him in the New Testament. Now, some have suggested that the roaring lion imagery would be Satan working with a guy like Nero. I mean, Nero was just a person who was on a vendetta, and he was just out slaughtering people, killing people, and Caligula was the same way. They represent the roaring lion. Others have suggested that a guy like Constantine, boy, he appeared to be an angel of light, good leader to the people. He appeared to have Christian values. He's the one who did things that Christians would, for the most part, say were relatively good. But don't ever forget this. Satan is deeply connected to political leaders. Secondly, he's deeply connected to religious leaders and religion. I'm telling you, we check, we try to check everything we do in this church in light of Scripture because most stuff done in religion has come from the Babylonian harlot. 
That's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. Most things denominations do and believe, a lot of stuff that goes on that we don't even think about, it's not based on Scripture. It's based on man's traditions, man's rules, man's thoughts. Where does that come from? Babylon. Satan does his great work in religion. Thirdly, Satan hates Jesus Christ, and he hates anything connected to Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget this. Satan hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates anything connected to Jesus Christ. Fourthly, just remember this, because this angel kept pointing this out to John, Satan and his forces are going to lose. They're not going to win this. In fact, you'll see next week, eventually, as God starts the finale of it all, they're going to lose. And finally, now's the time to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You want nothing to do with religious junk. You want a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Revelation. Who knows how you use this passage in our lives and minds, but I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.